knowing ahead of time what obstacles in life are coming help you to avoid them and to overcome them. If you know what obstacles are coming your way, it's easier to avoid those obstacles and even to overcome them. Uh, There's a TV show that my family, we we haven't watched it much, but we've watched it a handful of times. Uh, Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Wipeout. Uh, You may have seen it. So if you're a child of the 90s or 80s, it's like Fear Factor meets uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. So contestants compete on this, what they call the world's largest obstacle course. And it includes these hostile devices that try to knock the contestants off the path. Obviously, they, they don't know what's coming and they, they, they get hit by these devices and they fall, they plummet into a pool of water or mud or, or, or something else, right? They wear flak jackets, they wear helmets because these, these obstacles are pretty intense. If you finish the race, if, if you get to the end, you're crowned wipeout champion. I think you win like 50 grand. Um, and of course, the only one who gets to the end is the one who avoids the obstacles and overcomes them and finishes the race. I thought about wipeout this week when I was studying Luke chapter nine, because after Jesus Christ calls his disciples to follow him, Jesus in chapter nine, beginning in verse 37, all the way to the end of the chapter, he begins to tell his disciples about the obstacles that are coming, the obstacles, the things that will get in the way of their following Christ. Luke chapter nine, as we have seen, is a transitional chapter in the book, the gospel according to Luke. Jesus in chapter 9, verse 51, sets his face like flint and begins the long march to the cross. Chapter 9 is all about discipleship. It's all about your and my individual following of Christ. And Jesus says repeatedly in this chapter, what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem? He will be betrayed. He will suffer at the hands of sinful men and he will be crucified. And three days later, he will rise again. And he looks to his disciples and to the crowds and says, come, follow me. And how loving of Jesus that he doesn't hide these problems, these obstacles in the fine print. He tells his disciples at the very beginning, these are the obstacles you will face. That's the kindness of the Savior. I'm not just making this up. If you look at your Bible, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 9. If you're not used to using a Bible, you can find the Pew Bible in front of you and just turn to page 867. That's where Luke chapter 9 is. Let me just briefly mention, here's some of the obstacles. This morning, he's going to talk about the obstacle of unbelief. That's, that's ver- if you look down in your Bibles, that's verses 37 to 45. Next week, he's going to talk about the obstacle of pride, verses 46 to 48. He's going to talk about the obstacle of a partisan spirit, verses 49 to 50. And then the obstacle of a judgmental spirit, verses 51 to 56. And then Jesus, in verse 57 to the end of the chapter, lists out several 
excuses that people make that get in the way of their following Christ. So this morning, I hope you see the incredible loving heart of Jesus for him to tell us these obstacles ahead of time so that you, by his grace, can avoid these obstacles, overcome these obstacles, finish the race and get the prize. Let's listen now, beginning in verse 37, what Jesus says to us this morning. This is what Holy Scripture says. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them or met him. And behold, a crowd, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Brothers and sisters, my prayer this morning is that we, by God's Spirit, would see the majestic power and the majestic mercy of Jesus Christ in this passage. And that by seeing him in his majesty, that he would overcome all of our unbelief. So what we're going to do, we're just going to walk through the passage verse by verse, draw your attention to a few things. And then I want to draw two implications for us individually and corporately at the end. So let's look back at this amazing story. The first thing I want you to notice, verses 37 to 40. Notice first a desperate dilemma. We find in verses 37 to 40, a desperate dilemma. In these verses, we meet a worried father and a tortured son who are in a desperate dilemma. Right there in verse 37, Luke tells us when this is happening. Notice, don't look at me, look at your Bibles. It says the next day. What's he talking about? This is right after the transfiguration. Jesus Peter, James, John were up on the mountaintop. They saw, the tra- they saw Christ transfigured in glory. This is the next day. They've come down the mountain. We see that verse 37. There's a crowd at the bottom of the mountain waiting for them when they get there. And this man, this father, this desperate father, he had clearly heard something about Jesus. 
He'd heard about his healing ministry. He'd heard about what he could do for those who are plagued by demons. And so he comes to the crowd to find Jesus. He doesn't find Jesus there. Jesus is up on the mountain with the other three disciples. And so while Jesus is away, we're told that this this father had gone to the other disciples for help. But the disciples weren't able to help. They were powerless to help this boy. Verse 38, Jesus approaches and the father goes up to Jesus and he he cries out to Jesus. This this word, he, he screams at the top of his lungs. Verse 38, Rabbi, teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he cries out suddenly and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and this word and it shatters him. It literally crushes him and it won't leave him hardly. Verse 40, and I I begged, I kept on begging your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. They could not do it. They were, they were powerless to help me and to help my son. Now, the inability of the disciples to help this man and his son is striking. Because at the very beginning of chapter 9 of Luke, just a few verses earlier, we're told, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that Jesus sent out the, the, the apostles, remember, two by two. And he sent them out to do two things, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to heal. And we're told that Jesus gave his apostles power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So this is just a few verses earlier. He's given them this power and authority. And yet just a little bit later, we find them unable to help. This boy with these, this disease and with this, this demonic problem. We're told Dr. Luke always pays attention to the medical details. He tells us that the boy, this demon causes him to convulse. Verse 39. It, it literally shatters him. It crushes him. This poor boy, just think about it. He's oppressed. He's shattered. He's crushed. This thing won't leave him alone. Mark tells us in his account that the boy is mute because of the demon. He he can't talk. Matthew tells us he suffers terribly. His suffering is intense. the, The demon manifests itself by these, they're almost like epileptic seizures. The demon seizes this boy. He's thrown. He's slammed to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. We're told in the other accounts, he becomes rigid like a corpse, like he's dead. According to Mark, this isn't recent. This isn't something that just happened recently. Mark tells us this tragic detail. It's been happening to this boy since he was a young boy. Imagine living with this. The dad tells Jesus that the demon, he has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So this is just a horrible trial that this son and father are enduring. The boy is voiceless. He's mute. He can't ask for help. He can't say anything beyond muffled cries and shrieks. He can't speak to his dad. He can't even talk to his dad. 
He can't tell him what he's feeling. He can't tell him what he's going through. He's suffering. And in this dad, he just wants someone to help his son. That's all he wants. He hears about Jesus. He seeks Jesus out. Jesus isn't there. So he asks his disciples, you're his followers. Help my son. And they can't do anything. They can't help him. So he goes to Jesus in faith. In faith, I say that this dad goes to Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, this is what I was saying earlier. If you read the other gospel accounts, you find these other delicious details. Matthew 17, verse 15. I love this. The father sees Jesus and the first words out of his mouth are, Lord, have mercy on my son. Just as a parenting tip, that's what every good faithful parent does. They take their kid to Jesus and they say, Lord, have mercy on my son, on my daughter. This father, his faith may not be completely clear on a lot of things, but he knows one thing. He knows one thing. The father believes that the might of demons is no match for the mercy of Christ. That's what he believes. Lord, I asked your disciples to heal my son. They weren't able to do it. So I bring him to you. Lord, have mercy on my son, my only son, my beloved son. That's a desperate dilemma. That's that's how the passage starts. That leads to number two, an absolutely devastating diagnosis, a devastating diagnosis. Isn't that alliteration amazing? It's amazing how it just alliterates itself. Verse 41, a devastating diagnosis. Why couldn't the disciples help this boy? Why not? Why couldn't they help? Verse 41, Jesus offers a devastating diagnosis that reveals the root problem with not only the disciples, but the crowds and the entire generation of Israelites of Jesus's day. Verse 41, what's Jesus's explanation of the root cause? Verse 41, Jesus answered, here it is, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. That second word, faithless, Jesus is getting at the root problem. We're told in Matthew's gospel, when they ask later, why couldn't we do this? Jesus says, because of, of your faith. You, you don't have, you have, you're not trusting. And so Jesus goes to the root problem here and he describes, notice, the generation, that, that first century generation of Israelites, the, the crowds and the disciples included. And he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Now, I, I love reading books about World War II. Right now I'm reading the Ian Toll's trilogy of the war in the Pacific. It's great. And if you've ever read anything about the World War II generation, you know that what historians refer to when they talk about the World War II generation, the generation that, that, that grew up in the Great Depression and then went off and fought in World War II and helped to defend the country. What do, what do historians call that generation? The, I mean, the greatest generation. That's amazing. I mean, like, imagine, I mean, you talk to folks in that generation. It's unbelievable. They don't even talk, they don't, they don't think of themselves as great, but that's what we call them. The greatest generation. They didn't do it for fame or for recognition. They did all that because it was the right thing to do. And they're called the greatest generation. Well, Jesus, 
He doesn't think his generation is the greatest generation, does he? He, get, he gives his generation a title. What's the title? The title of his generation is a faithless and twisted generation. Later in Luke's gospel, chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus calls this generation, the same generation, evil. Later on, Jesus is going to say it's a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, greatest generation or a member of the twisted, faithless, evil, wicked, adulterous generation. That's the contrast I want you to see. Jesus never, ever speaks an idle word. When he says this generation is faithless, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament. We read it earlier in our service. Deuteronomy 32. Remember what did Moses say? He said in Deuteronomy 32, looking out to this generation of Israelites who God rescued in the Exodus. He said, you're a faithless and twisted generation. Same thing Jesus says here. Later on in Deuteronomy 32, I'll just read it to you again because you probably forgot. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with the Lord. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Verse 20, Moses says they are a perverse generation. Children in whom there is no faithfulness. You see, Jesus is taking the indictment from Moses in his day. And saying, he's looking at the crowds. He's hearing about his disciples. He's looking at the scribes and the Pharisees, this entire generation. And says, for the most part, there's exceptions. But for the most part, this is a faithless and twisted generation. He says, how how long must I bear with you? Now, In the crowd that day, I imagine there were people with different levels of trust in Jesus, right? You don't want to just paint with a broad brush. There were some there who absolutely, the scribes who were there, they had no faith in Jesus. You had the disciples whose faith was kind of, it was was all over the place, right? Peter has just said in this chapter, when he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, the Messiah of God. Right answer. And then right after that, when Jesus says he's going to the cross, he says, he rebukes Jesus and says, that's never going to happen. And Jesus says, what? Get behind me, what? Satan. So Peter's faith is a little off. It sees the right things, but it's not quite quite there yet. So the, 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 the crowd was filled with different people. But I just want you to point out that this desperate father is actually someone held up for us by Luke and the other writers in the Gospels. As an example of faith. Why do I say that? These disciples had been with Jesus three years. They had seen all that God had done in and through Jesus. They'd seen his divine power. They'd seen his miraculous healing. They'd seen all of the miracles. They had a front row seat of his glory. And yet, so often the disciples, they they didn't trust. They doubted. Just like that generation who had seen God work in the Exodus. And now Jesus has just said on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were there. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring about a new Exodus, a new rescue operation. And when he comes down from the mountain, he finds a faithless generation, just like Moses did. Listen again to what Matthew says in this same event. 
When the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we drive out the demon? Jesus says, because you have so little faith. You have so little faith. He says, even if you had had the the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could ask this mountain to move and it would do. So that's Jesus's devastating diagnosis of the problem. It's unbelief. Why, why, do you, why should you care? You think, I don't care, pastor. That, that's about them. Here's why I'm telling you this. Do you know the biggest obstacle to your disciple and to following Jesus? It's unbelief. Do you, there, there's, a, there's an obstacle in your life right now. It's bigger, bigger than the Ukraine-Russian crisis. It's bigger than anything on the front page news. All of the front page news that, that's there today, just flush it. Here's the biggest thing you face right now in this world is your own unbelief. That is the biggest obstacle you will ever face. The biggest trial you will ever go through is you. It's your own wandering heart. So so this passage is extremely applicable because the problem that this generation has is the problem that every generation has. Unbelief. How do we fight unbelief? Our own unbelief. That brings us to number three. A divine deliverance. A divine deliverance. Verses 42 to 43. In verses 42 to 43, Jesus amazingly delivers this boy by displaying his majestic mercy and divine power. Look what he says. I love, he says, you know, after just giving the diagnosis about unbelief, he says to the dad, bring your son to me. Bring your only son to me. And so the dad does. But the the demon kind of knows that his time is up. He knows this is not good. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and, and convulsed him. In the longer account Mark gives, he tells us that the boy fell on the ground. He rolled about. He was foaming at the mouth and and Jesus, the, the dad says, you know, if you can do anything to help him, have mercy on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And so he comes to Jesus. He asks for mercy. He asks for help. Have compassion on us. And Luke tells us that Jesus, I love this, rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. And this is my favorite part of the whole passage. And gave him back to his father. Isn't that wonderful? If you remember Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 7, Jesus did the same thing at the gates of Nain. Remember? That poor widow had lost her only son, her only child. And they were going to the grave to bury him. And Jesus meets that woman, raises her son from the dead. And we're told he gave that widow, that woman, her only son back. Safe and sound. So don't, don't, friend, don't skip over phrases like that. I hope in that little phrase you see the incredible tender heart of Christ towards sinners. Because his heart hasn't changed. His heart hasn't changed. He's still, he's still tender towards sinners even, even today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 43, look at the response of the crowds. And all were astonished. They, they, they kept on marveling 
at the, I love this, at the majesty of God. They, they may not have faith in Christ, but they know that what just happened, only God could do this. Only a God who is majestic could do what just happened. And of course, God had done something amazing in Jesus Christ. So Jesus utters a word. He, this, bo- this boy this, who's incurable, incurable for however many years, is cured instantly, completely, majestically. What a display of mercy and power. That brings us, number four, last, last thing to talk about with the passage before we get to some implications. Verses 43 to 45. A dreadful declaration. A dreadful declaration. Now, you would expect at this point after healing this boy, there would be high fives among the disciples, you know, some, some bro hugs with Jesus. Everyone's excited. Everyone's, yes, you did it, Jesus. Great, great, great job. That's not what happens. This is amazing. Everyone's marveling at the majesty of God. Everyone's celebrating what God has just done. And it literally at that moment, look what he says, verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said only to his disciples. He he gets the disciples together. I'm sure the roars of the crowd were still going on. And he says something to them. Verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The very wicked, faithless, perverse generation I just said, I'm about to be handed over to that generation. He tells once again what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. He tells them ahead of time, this is where I'm going. Follow me. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to be handed over, according to chapter 24, verse 7, he's going to be delivered over into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise on the third day. Luke 24, verse 7. So, It's difficult to imagine how shocking this would have been, again, to the ears of the disciples. The image of the son of David conquering the Gentiles, the Messiah, was so big, it outshadowed the cross. When they heard Jesus' claim to be the son of man and to be the Messiah of God, their thought was he's going to go in and wipe out God's enemies, the Romans. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to be handed over to this wicked generation. And because of their ignorance, because of their spiritual pride, we'll see that next week, because of their unbelief, because of their lack of spiritual understanding, because of God's also mysterious withholding of divine illumination, verse 45, the disciples are kept clueless. They're kept from understanding what's going on. Verse 45, they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them. That is, God concealed it from them so that they may not perceive it. And notice their response is fear. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Brothers and sisters, there's lots that we could draw attention to in this passage that should impact the way we follow Christ. But let me just draw two of them. Two of them, hopefully you'll see them from the text. The the main thing that I want you to see, 
Because these two applications or implications are all about unbelief. The main thing you need to say is what I said earlier. This passage makes clear that our primary obstacle to following Jesus is unbelief. That's the primary obstacle or enemy you will face until you see Jesus. Man redeemed is man at war, especially with your own unbelief. And so I want to draw two implications about unbelief, about the lack of faith that hopefully will help us avoid and overcome this, this obstacle. First thing to see, it's very clear in the passage. Number one, the lack of faith displeases the Lord. The lack of faith displeases the Lord. If you just look at verse 41, it's clear that the lack of faith, that is the unbelief of his generation and his disciples, they, it displeases the Lord. If you're a disciple of Jesus, your aim is the pleasure of God in Christ. That's why you, that's why you want to live. You want to live for the glory and pleasure of your Father in heaven. You want to you live and serve Christ in this world in such a way that when you die and you stand before him, he says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of, of, of your master. That's, that's why we live. We live to please Jesus in everything. That, that's what it means to be a disciple, right? Paul prays in Colossians chapter 1, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and to be fully pleasing to Jesus in everything. That's what we want to do. We want to bring pleasure and honor to Jesus. But we can't please Jesus apart from faith. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. So the path of faith in discipleship is the path of pleasing God in Christ. It's not a separate path. It's not like the path of faith's over here and the path of discipleship over here. The Christian path of discipleship is the path of faith. Because the Christian aims to please God in all things. So it's easy to dunk on the disciples. It's easy to dunk on that evil, wicked generation in the first century. It's easy. We look at them and we think, man, they just, just didn't get it. But we need to ask ourselves, hey, wait a second. We've seen God work. We've seen God answer prayer. We've seen, we have his word. What about our own unbelief? What about your unbelief? When we hear bad news, when our best laid plans fall apart, when trials show up, does your faith falter? Do you begin to doubt? What's your response when you hear bad news? What's your initial response? Maybe you begin to try to fix the problem in your own power. And then down the road, you're like, oh, I probably should pray about this. Our slowness to pray is a revelation to us of how much we're just saturated with unbelief. 
If you read Mark's gospel, when he talks about this passage, at the very end, after he says it's because of your little faith, and Jesus says this demon only comes out by prayer. So I would argue that it's likely the fact that the disciples were trying to exercise this demon. They weren't praying. They were relying on their own strength. Your reliance on your own strength is a manifestation of the unbelief that's still in your heart. So, brothers and sisters, we need to confess and repent of our own unbelief. We need to confess to the Lord and repent of our own unbelief. And we need to ask for forgiveness. Lord, listen, our Lord has never, ever, ever done anything that should cause us to doubt him. You realize that? He's trustworthy. If we're looking at something that's happening, we're thinking not, that, that's a reason to doubt him. We're not looking at it the right way. Israel had no reason to doubt God in the wilderness. The disciples had no reason to doubt him at the, at the, 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 the bottom of the mountain of transfiguration. And friend, you have no reason to doubt him this morning. If you have any doubts this morning about anything that you're going through, look at the cross. Look at the cross. This passage isn't just a correction and a rebuke of our own unbelief. The second one I want to spend a little more time on. Number two, and finally, is the object of faith is a majestic Savior. The object of faith is a majestic Savior. That's verses 42 to 45. We don't just find the fact that the lack of faith displeases the Lord. We find that the object of faith is a majestic savior. And the reason this is important, brothers and sisters, is that to the degree you see Christ clearly from his word as majestic, as mighty, and as merciful, to that degree and no further will you trust him. Romans 10 says faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing, And hearing by the word of Christ. You've The way you grow in faith is by seeing Christ in his word. So to the degree you see the majestic glory and the majestic mercy of Jesus in his word, to that degree, you will trust him and follow him. The way you fight the deceitful lies of sin is by believing better promises. So. Jesus doesn't just show himself to be the object of faith. You also have an example in this in this father. When you read the other accounts of the the gospel writers, I love this. This is so great. Verse 38, he says, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. Y'all said, look at your Bibles. Don't look at me. You see that in verse 38? I beg you, look at my son, my only child. You see that? When you read that, it's kind of random. When you first read it, you're like, he just wants Jesus to look at him? Like physically turn your eyes to my son? That's not what he's saying. That word look upon, it's only used one other time in Luke. It's only used three times in the New Testament. It's not the word that ESV normally renders look. The word that he's using here is it's used to describe God looking upon someone with his favor, with his grace. He's pleading to Christ in verse 38, look upon my son with divine favor. 
Look upon him. Look upon him with God's gracious care. The word was used earlier in Luke's gospel. You know this passage. The Virgin Mary, when she was told that she was going to bear the Savior of sinners in her womb, she said in Luke chapter 1, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has what? Looked upon my humble estate, the humble estate of his servant. For behold, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is upon all the generations who fear him. Isn't that beautiful? This is the same thing that this man is saying. He's coming to the same Savior and he says, show your mercy on my son. Just look on him with your favor. And so this desperate father, he doesn't have the faith. He doesn't have the strong faith that Mary has. But listen, It's his weak faith, his frail faith, that is real faith. Isn't that wonderful? He asked the Savior who's mighty and holy and full of mercy, look upon my only son and care for him. And when you read Mark's account of this, right before Jesus heals this pitiful boy, do you know what this father says? He brings his son to Jesus, says, look upon him. And the father cries out, I believe. Help my what? Unbelief. Isn't that wonderful? It's it's not the strength of his faith. It's the strength of the one in whom he's trusting. It's not that he has perfect faith. He has weak faith. He has faith that's mingled with unbelief. But he says, I know you can do this. What a wonderful lesson. Don't look to the strength of your faith. Look upon the object of your faith. The one who is the Savior, who's merciful and mighty. Faith, friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, when we use the word faith, faith looks away from self. Faith looks away from self. It looks away from our own weakness. It looks upon a savior who's almighty. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want a, if you want a once in his prayer, if you're like, my prayer life stinks, I need a once in his prayer. Here you go. Here's a prayer, a one sentence prayer from this passage from this father. Ready? Every day you should pray this. Every hour you could pray this. Lord Jesus Christ, Have mercy on me. I believe. Help my unbelief. You can say amen if you want. Or amen. Okay, we only have one person. Lord, help my unbelief. That's this father. Weak, frail Christian. Your faith, however weak, unites you to a savior who's almighty God. Children, you're sitting in a pew right now. You're trusting that that pew is going to keep you from falling down. You're resting all of your weight, children, either on mama's lap or in that pew. Because you believe that pew is going to stay there. That's what faith means. You're resting your soul, your eternity into the hands of another. You're receiving the Savior in the empty hands of faith. Faith is always the outstretched hand. 
It's always the beggar's outstretched hand. It's never the rich man's gold. We don't pay for our salvation. We don't earn our salvation. We receive it freely by receiving the Savior in empty hands, by resting and receiving on Jesus Christ. So Christian, be reminded this morning, it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in the Savior that saves you. It is Christ. It's not even your faith that saves you. It's the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith is just the instrument through which you receive the Savior. I can't go through a sermon without quoting John Newton. It's the best part of the sermon. So here we go. He wrote to a person in his congregation who was struggling with doubting. And this is what he said. Quote, we go forth doubting and fearing, and we are afraid to trust any farther than we can feel. Isn't that true? How many times has that been true for you? You don't feel, so you don't trust. He says, we're afraid to trust any farther than we can feel. We are as weak as water and easily overcome, but we have an advocate with the Father who is able to pity and pardon and save to the uttermost. Take it for granted from the warrant of his word that you belong to Christ. You are his and he has yours and he has loved you with an everlasting love. And therefore, in mercy, he has drawn you to himself and he will surely accomplish what he has begun. And nothing that can be named or thought shall ever separate you from his love. So be strong, therefore, not in yourself, but in the grace that is in Jesus. Amen. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, do not build your eternity on the frail foundation of any good work or any effort to please God apart from Christ. Nothing less than the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ is sufficient. All other ground we sing often is sinking sand. God made you for himself. We've rebelled against him. That's what the Bible calls sin. We deserve his just condemnation. But because of his great love for sinners, he sent his only son into the world. To live for us, to die for us, to bear the wrath of God in our place on the cross. And he rises victoriously three days later to offer life, forgiveness and righteousness to anyone who will trust in him. That's the good news of the gospel. If you have questions about what it means to believe, what it means to follow him, you can talk to me afterwards. And one of the things you can pray, even this morning, if you're if you don't believe, have the courage to pray this. Lord, help my unbelief. That's a prayer Jesus will answer. There's one aspect as we close of Christ's majesty, his mercy and his might that I want us to conclude. And this is for all of us who are following Jesus this morning as we close. We probably skipped over it too fast in the passage. Look there at verse 44. Let, he says, let these words sink down into your ears. And then Jesus says that once he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over. You see that? Handed over, delivered over, your Bible may say, to the hands of men. Do you see that? 
in other translations, he's delivered over, handed over to the Gentiles. Now, when we read that passage, that phrase, don't think Jesus means that just simply means the Jewish leaders are going to hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities. That's not what he's that's not what he means. That's included within what he means, but that doesn't exhaust the meaning. The reason that we are not shocked by that statement that the Messiah, the son of man, is going to be delivered over to the hands of men is because we don't know our Old Testament. If we knew our Old Testament better, we would we would be blown away by that phrase. It's a theologically loaded phrase in the Old Testament. God uses this phrase in his word to apply to the nation of Israel when they bowed down to idols and were sent into exile and they suffered in exile in Babylon. We're told that according, this is, this is Psalm 106 verse 40. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage and he gave them into the hands of the Gentiles. They're outside the promised land. They're sent in exile to the east. They're handed over to sinful men. That phrase is theological shorthand to be under the judgment and wrath of God. So what's the point? Jesus is telling his disciples, not just I'm going to die on the cross, But when I go to Jerusalem to die on the cross, I'm going to be handed over to the wrath of God. The long-awaited Messiah, the promised king from David's line, is going to be handed over to the wrath of God in place of sinners. And here's the wonder of wonders. This was God's plan all along. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but handed him over delivered him over for us all how will he not also together with him graciously give us all things. On the cross we're told by Paul that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. So brothers and sisters, Jesus was crucified in weakness, but as the strong man, he disarmed Satan and all of his spiritual forces of wickedness and put them to open shame on the cross. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And it's also stronger than the demon described in this passage. We were worse off than this boy. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world. And according to Ephesians 2, we were disciples of the prince of the power of the air. But Christ on his majestic cross... In power and glory, he saved us. Pity and power met. Steadfast love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace kissed each other on Calvary. 
Satan, just like the demon in this passage, wanted to crush you. But our merciful and mighty Savior broke the power of the evil one. He broke the power of the serpent on the cross. He rose on the third day according to his word for our justification. And because of Christ this morning, we can trust his promise. That the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Lord Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father. Lord, we do pray that we would look and see the glory and the power and the majesty of your son. And that because he is majestic, that we would trust him. We would trust him enough to follow him faithfully in this world until that day when we see you face to face. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.